So, what have you heard this week? What have you heard? We're all hearing things from our friends, from social media, news and entertainment. What have you heard? What have you heard in 2022? What kind of messages have you taken in? What's been communicated to you about how we should live? About what's good or what's not good. A lot we get we take in so much from various sources, from the people we're with, from the we take in so much that a lot of times the, certain messages get reinforced so much that they, they are so normal we wouldn't even notice. We wouldn't even notice maybe what's been communicated about the best way to live in a certain area of our life. That's been communicated many, many times through the stories we watch or read or take in, through the messages, through our own friendship. It gets communicated to us over and over again. We don't even notice. It just becomes normal. Now, not asking for raising of hands or anything like that, are you a Christian? Do you consider yourself a Christian? I want to remind you that what it means to be a Christian is to be like Christ. Little Christs, because they resembled Christ. That's how the, the term first got on. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Would you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus? Now, for me, and I think for many of us, for a period of time, we would consider ourselves a Christian, but not necessarily a disciple. A disciple sounded a little bit more like up a notch. A disciple sounded like, you know, more like the Marines, more like they're all in, all the way. In the Bible, before Christ, the term Christian ever came about, everyone who believed was called a disciple. They were intentionally trying to become like Jesus, hear from Jesus, and become like him. That's what it meant to be a believer. Now, today, some people might consider themselves a Christian because they're not a Muslim or a Hindu or, you know, and they're American, or because they take a certain political packaging, and Christianity seems to be part of that political packaging. Um, they, they go to church occasionally. That's, you know, that's where they would get married or buried. So then they consider themselves a Christian, but the thought that they are trying to become like Jesus isn't really part of the equation of why they define themselves as a Christian. So that's part of the reason I ask you whether you think you're a Christian, whether you consider yourself to be a Christian. If you do biblically, part of that would mean that you are trying to listen to Jesus and to do what he says in your life. He is Savior. That's a lot of people like, most sign off on that one. Save me, I want to go to heaven, I'm a Christian. But when people join the church here, we say, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? The one who's in charge of your life. And so we listen to him, and we try to do what he tells us to do. And he says, blessed are those 
who hear the word of God and obey it. Or another place, blessed are those who hear these words of mine, including the words we're about to read, and put those things into practice. They're the kind of person whose life will hold up over time. So in this series, what we're looking at is six areas of life, we're on number three this week, that Jesus talked about. And what we're trying to do is reflect a little bit what Jesus tells us about this area of life. Does it match what we typically hear from our friend groups, from our, where we work, from what we take in, in all kinds of ways? Do these things match up? So let me read today's area of life from Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the reading of God's word. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> so, I gotta tell you, this isn't like my favorite subject to take on. I, I, uh, I have taught on this once, uh, before at least, and it was like 10 years ago, and I remember it because here's, here's what happened. There was a foreign exchange student, high school student, who lived with one family that attended Celebrate for the first half of the school year, and so they, she came to Celebrate. She was not a Christian when she came over. She became a Christian while going to celebrate. So she would come from time to time with that family. But the second semester or the second half of the school year, she lived with a family that was not church-going. And on her last Sunday, she asked that family, would you take me to celebrate church because I'm going back overseas. I want to be at Celebrate Church. So they said, okay, and they came. And the, the message that day was what I just read to you. Very seeker-sensitive, you know, very... So that family from that Sunday started coming. One person particularly got very involved for years. What she told me was that she used to go to church but that a number of years ago, she heard a pastor preach on this passage. And it made her so mad, she said, I'm done with church. And then I came and I preached on this passage. Now, what are the odds? This is a lot, of, a lot of material we could be working with. Same passage that she said, see a church, is what she's hearing there. But it was there was a different angle on it, a different explanation of it. And she said, I think I'll be back next week. And then she just kept coming and got involved. Now, I feel like God is awesome. He takes a non-Christian from Europe, teenage girl, and sends her as a missionary <laughs> to a person who's left the church and that person brings it, and then he says, and I'm going to know, you, you've been living with them this whole time, but I'm waiting for a Sunday in which I can get a hold of this person's heart. That's what God does. May he use us to do things like that, unbeknownst to us all the time. But I remember, I hadn't really thought about that for a long time, but I remembered it here because I was thinking like, 
whatever I said that week, it must have been pretty good. I don't remember anything about it, though. It does me no good now. So we're just going to have to keep going in the same way we've been going, which is to say, okay, what was being said to this original audience? How were they understanding what Jesus said? Because the original audience was religious people. It wasn't uh, just non-Christian people. It's religious people who believe in the Torah, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. They believe in that, but they have come to interpret it a different way. They have come to live it out, twist it a little bit, and Jesus says, you hear this and you're applying it this way. I'm going to tell you what it's like to be part of the kingdom of God, where what God wants to happen happens. I want to teach you what that kind of attitude is in these different areas of life. Now, these two verses are really tricky. I mean, we're talking about now if you married a divorced woman who commits adultery. We have lots of people who are divorced and remarried in the room. And so where are we, where's Jesus going with this? To better understand it in this context, Jesus talks about this issue again, and it's told in a story where he's in a dialogue in Matthew chapter 19. I want to read these verses and then because ex- I think I can help explain. Here's what Jesus was getting at in the context back then. So chapter 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a, son, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, here's what's going on. Verse 3, the question that comes to Jesus is, is it lawful to marry or is it lawful to divorce a woman for any and every reason? At that time, there were two schools of thought. People thought, followed one rabbi or another rabbi on many teachings. And one of the issues where the two rabbis really disagreed was the grounds for divorce. One rabbi, Shimai, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but he said, unless there was like grievous moral failing, then like, like committing of adultery, then you were not to get divorced. Hillel said you could divorce a woman for any and every reason, and he gave examples. If your wife burned your dinner, grounds for divorce. If your wife oversalted your food, grounds for divorce. If you saw another woman and she was more pleasing to you than your wife, grounds for divorce. Now, they set this up. They set up these Pharisees. They're, They're... trying to trap. It says they're testing Jesus. They're trying to set him up and put him on the defense. So they're saying, which camp are you going to be on? Now, if he's in the one camp, I mean, which camp do you think was most popular with men of the day? (laughs) 
So he's got all these people following him, including people who haven't really been following Jesus or, or haven't, been, I mean, haven't been really religious, or they, but people are following him. And so they're like, so is he going to side with them? If he doesn't, then he starts to lose some of that popular appeal. But if he goes this, if he, if he says, yeah, for any and every reason, now we get him on moral, morally shaky ground. So they're just trying to test him in this. They're trying to trap him. And Jesus responds with two things that undercuts their question. The first thing is they ask about divorce. And they are, this whole idea of a certificate of divorce is found in one verse in the Old Testament, in, in Deuteronomy, and it's in this kind of a, a situational example of what, if something happens, then this, if this happens, then this. That's it. So they take this one little situational example, and they start talking about that, and Jesus responds to their question about divorce, and he says, let's talk about how marriage was started. Before we talk about divorce, let me bring you back to marriage. Let me bring you back to the God, the creator, is the one who said, this is what marriage is. And he brings it to marriage. There has been lots of energy back in his day about what exactly is it so that men can divorce their wives? What, what are the rules? Now, that would be like me. I'm sitting with a couple, pre-marriage. We're sitting there talking. I say, okay, you're going to do traditional vows. Okay, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, and sickness and health. Okay. Well, you know, for better, for worse, it is a vow. But, like, what would happen if, if, if one of you had a, or if, if, if the man started beating you, if he starts beating you? I mean, that's worse, but that's, like, worse to the point where I don't think you would really need to keep this vow if he started beating you. They're like, okay. okay remember, we're in pre they're getting ready to get married. They're in love. Now, there might be other things. If one of you had an affair, then maybe the vow about better for worse, that might be worser than worse. And so that doesn't count either. And then we get it. Now, can, let's, maybe we should work out other examples of why it might get worser than worse to the point where the vow doesn't count anymore. Like, let's say that there's a workaholic thing going on. Now, I don't know if the workaholic thing... Like, is it 70 hours? But we should try to figure out how many hours would be workaholic ahead of time to know whether the vow is the vow. What if, you know, we should probably let that go for two years, one year? What do you think is the right amount of time where, where no longer is worse or the worse, where we, now we don't count the vow? What if she always berates you and belittles you? Okay, should we maybe keep track of how many times? All right, I'm, I'm making a point by saying all this. Saying, like, if the focus is on the vow and I spend all my energy with a couple pointing to their attention of like, how might this vow no longer be legitimate? That's not helpful. That's not helpful. That can happen in marriage, by the way. That at a certain point, because we are broken people and we hurt each other, that now the focus starts to get in and like, at this point... One more time. I'm starting to keep track now, and now I'm focusing on grounds for divorce instead of how do we get this marriage better. And Jesus takes 
them back to, let's start with the fact that God said marriage is about two people becoming one for a lifetime. Being put together, the goal is that it would not be divided. So let's not put all kinds of energy into all the reasons for divorce. That's where he starts. He has flipped the tables on them. Remember, their whole point is not that they really even care about this thing. They are trying to set up Jesus. And Jesus now, instead of being caught in this, like, what would be too legalistic, what would be too permissive, anything goes, he has flipped it to, like, well, let's talk about marriage. Okay, they're backing up. So then they say, well, why does Moses command a, a man to give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And just so you know, the certificate, here's why a certificate of divorce is a good thing. Back then, if the man divorced the woman, the woman had a few options. If her family would take her back in, she could go live with her family. If they would. Uh, she could maybe find another man to remarry. Usually that would not put her in a good situation, but it would be better than the third alternative, which is she could turn to prostitution. It is not like our time. It's not like she could just go get another job. She could just start fresh. She could make a new way. No, 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 no. That wasn't available to women at the time. And at the time of Moses' writing, where, where he the certificate of divorce line came up in the first place, if a woman was caught with another man, then she was stoned to death. If she was a married woman and then caught with another man, she was stoned to death. And so the certificate of divorce was a way to say, like, I can be with someone else because he's divorced me. Instead of the man saying, yeah, I divorced you, and then not making it official so he could go back, but she's left in a vulnerable place. So the whole point of the certificate of divorce was to protect a woman. But what they say is, why did Moses command a guy to give the certificate of divorce? And Jesus' response was, Moses permitted you. They use the word command, which is what can happen when we're defensive in an argument. We like ratchet it up a notch, you know, like, all right, you know, uh, I mean, this isn't totally true, but it'll feel better. And he said, no, there is no command in the Bible, go divorce your wife. He permitted divorce because your hearts were hard. Because of hard-heartedness. God's intent was that marriage would be, it's going to last over the long haul. But hard-heartedness leads to divorce. And then Jesus says this, this thing about if you, there's coming in different ways, the different times of Jesus saying, like, somehow when you're divorced, if you marry again, you're committing adultery. Let me just go back to the original passage. In the original passage, the first thing, and it, it's a correction of how this has been translated in a confusing way in the past, says you would make the woman a victim of adultery. Let me explain it by starting with what have we covered so far. Jesus says, you have heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, don't be angry. Here's what's going on. The most religious men of the day, they can say, like, I am a good moral person. And everybody's going to agree, they're a good moral person. They keep the law. They keep 
Korah. They keep the rules. They don't murder. Now, what if you don't murder? This man doesn't murder, but he is full of anger and contempt, and he's mean. And he, he ruins relationships, and he does all of these things. And oh, by the way, anger is what leads to murder, like murdering someone's reputation, like killing relationships. Anger, when it keeps going, keeps, and is full-blown, could be, lead to murder. So Jesus is saying it's not enough to say, well, I've never killed anyone. See, I've kept the law. You need to start with anger in your attitude. Now, then he moves on to lust and adultery. And so I'm a good religious man. I've never committed adultery. But I noticed her, and I, I'd like her to be my wife. And so if I can find a way to make it so I can divorce my wife, then I can go and marry her, and I will have kept the law and still be a good moral person. And I'll never have committed adultery. You see what Jesus is getting at there when he says, you made her the victim of adultery. Or what's happening in his very day, the Herod, the one ruler of the time, through a means of manipulation, got his brother's wife to divorce him and was, made it possible so that he could take her as his wife. So he didn't commit adultery because she was divorced when they got married. And Jesus is saying that is still adultery. Okay, but what about us and this subject? What about us in this subject? What does Jesus say to us? Well, what have we heard about divorce? What is true about divorce? For any and every reason? No-fault divorce? What does, what does I don't, movie and entertainment... What do they say about divorce? What do they say about what, where sex should happen or not happen? I am putting that out there because, again, like I started with, we take in messages all the time that makes things feel normal that then when we read what Jesus would say makes it be like, wow, that is strong. Okay. What is best? What is best? We ha- I think we have the same dilemma that they were trying to, the Pharisees were trying to put Jesus in. Like when we get into these issues around marriage, around divorce, around sex, there's a way in which, okay, it feels like my choice is I can be, you know, like try to line up, line up here, and then feel really legalistic, then feel uncaring to people who are in my midst who aren't going the same way, then kind of feed into the stereotype that the church is obsessed with, with sex and they're homophobic and all of this. I can go there. I don't want to be legalistic and judgmental and have people feel like I feel like I'm better than them. So then I can go over here, which is just like everybody decides for themselves. And it's best to maybe just do this. Well, that probably is actually not a terrible idea for the most part. So what, what are we to do? Well, in this situation, Jesus was asked. 
one thing. I don't need to go telling everybody my opinion about these matters. If we're in a conversation, I can ask or I can answer. But I think it'd be good, it'd be helpful to focus on where Jesus focuses on. And he says, from the beginning, male and female, man and woman come together united in a committed marriage to becoming one that should not separate. He says that. Next, I, I believe, Lord willing, next year, we are going to do a sermon series on LGBTQ stuff. That's not a great way of saying it, but there are, there are situations, there are people who we know, who we love, who are here, and how do we navigate all of this? What's the best biblical way to navigate it? Again, there are many messages coming our way. Some of the church's response can sometimes just be, or, what do we do? I would like to tackle that over a period of time, not just from up front, but maybe in ways that we can talk about it. Talk about scary. Thus, next year. We'll punt till next year. But, can I, can I just, I've, I think I've told this story a couple times. Let me tell you again. I, when I was first here, a young couple came into my office. They had set up a meeting with me. Okay. Didn't know them. I guess they had been in church once. They had been at a wedding here once. They said, we have two questions for you. We're, getting, we're engaged. I said, congratulations. We're getting married. We have two questions for you. First question, do you marry people who are living together? I said, yes, I, I, I do. I assume if you're living together, you're sleeping together. I don't think they're ready for that response, but I mean, why, why is this an issue? Why are you asking me this question? So, but... Um, do you, I think I didn't start there, but I think I said, so do you go to church? No, we don't go to church, but we have, we grew up, we went to church off and on. Okay, so we go to, all right, um, why do you want me to do your wedding? You know, so if I understand right, you would like God's blessing on your marriage. Yeah. I said, well, I, here are three, three things I'd like you to consider. Can I talk to you about God and Jesus while we're getting ready for your marriage. We're going to meet a few times. We... Yeah. Can I talk about God and Jesus at your wedding in a way that's fitting to you? I'm not going to just come some preachy sermon, but in a way that's fitting to where you're at. Yeah. Then my only other thing would be, is there nothing that's overtly dishonoring to God at your ceremony? That would be something else. That would be my other... Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Okay. So you said you had two questions. What's your other question? Do you marry gay people? I said, well, you know, I know it feels like kind of probably a double standard that I would marry the two of you if you're living together or people that are living together, but, but not. And I don't mean to come across judgmental and, and, and all of that, but no. No, I, I, I'm not able to. Uh, I will not marry two people that are, are gay. I said, good. I mean, I probably was like, I probably was just trying to like hide the like, what? That doesn't, that doesn't quite make sense. But I would say that's a lot of our attitude in the church. 
is that we don't, we want to be gracious to people who've gone through the pain of divorce. We want to be, be gracious and not push people away who are living together, sleeping together before they're married. You know, just parents who are, I mean, you've got adult, these are adults making a decision. So if they decide to live together, there's only so much you can say. But, but whatever, no big whoop. When it comes to LGBTQ stuff, that's why we need to talk about that next year. But pray for all of us. How do we do this? It's complex. It is hard. For the rest, for the few moments I'm going to keep going today, I want us to us who don't have same-sex attractions, to focus on what does this mean for us. And the thing that has been striking me about this passage is the idea that marriage is about God joining two people together. Marriage is about God joining two people together. I said last week, sex is a gift God gives to help two people bond. And he gives that gift to be done in a committed relationship. So that is two becoming one. And he's saying we should do that here because when it happens in all kinds of different places, for one thing, it makes the bonding thing not work as well. And it causes more of this in our life. Whether we acknowledge God or not, it just does. So, Here's my opinion. Now, first of all, statistically speaking, living together before getting married, higher percentage of divorce. And that doesn't count the fact that lots of people who live together never get married in the first place. There are reasons for that, just non-religious reasons, for why living together and sleeping together before getting married is, causes it to be less likely that you can stay married. I know we're in a room full of people who've lived together before they get married. And, and are still married. Woohoo! Woo! That's good. But oh, here's the, something I have never thought about until this week. I wonder if when we live together before we're married, we start joining together on our own. But when we wait until marriage, we say, God, join us together. Now, if, we've ha if that's not been the order, and this is my take on everything, let's start where we're at now. We don't need to like, oh, heap guilt and shame and all kinds of stuff on us, but where we're at now, let's try to make marriage work. Quick, I need to make one quick comment about divorce before I start bringing this thing in. That is, some of these passages have been used to counsel people into staying married that are in awful situations, abusive situations. No, that is not Jesus' intent. That is, if you are in an abusive situation, you need to get out and get help. That is not his intent. Dallas Willard, actually I'll just read it because otherwise I'll... He says, hard hearts may make divorce necessary 
to avoid greater harm and hence make it permissible. I'll just read it again. Hard hearts, often that's both to degrees, but sometimes there is a really significant one hard heart, may make divorce necessary to avoid greater harm and hence make it permissible. He goes on to say, but kingdom hearts are not hard. So let me give an example. I had a couple who came to me, and, and they came to me together, and then they came to me one-on-one in a, in a couple different situations, and what happened was he, well, she did not believe in divorce, did not believe it was okay. He knew that. He had moved out. He was with another person, but he said, I'm not, I am not filing for divorce because he knew. Now he has it both ways. If he wants to go back, he can go back, and she just, what do I do? I know it's wrong for divorce. I said, well, he has spiritually divorced you. He is not living like a married person. He's not living with you. He's not working on the marriage. He's with another person. He has, he has made the decision. You would be meeting him in the decision he already made. So I just want to say that because the emphasis here from Jesus is divorce is bad. It's painful. It is painful. It is painful for whoever goes through it. It is painful for kids that are involved. Divorce isn't the best. If there's a way that marriages can work, go for it. And some of you in this room have been part of divorce and you tried to make marriages work. You tried. Okay. Don't hear God's heart as condemning it. Because God says divorce is bad and painful does not mean if you've gone through that pain, you are bad. That is not it. But we do the best we can to keep soft hearts. Matthew 18, right before this whole passage on Matthew 19, it talks about how many times should I forgive a person? Seven? And he says seven times 77. And then he talks about a story about God, how much God forgives us, so how can we forgive? That is part of keeping a heart soft if we're in marriage. We learn to love. It's Mother's Day. It helps me commemorate my first Mother's Day with Camille, in which I, oh, sorry, I'm distracting myself. I'm just so glad I don't go to tulip festivals anymore. But back then, I lived over there, I lived over there. I just, I went to lots of tulip festivals over 17 years. And so I had stuff the whole Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I spoke at the community service on Mother's Day. And so when Mother's Day came, I didn't have a gift. I didn't have a card. We got Elliot as a baby. And that was hurtful to Camille. And my response was, you're not my mom. We learn. We learn. Now, I've blown other Mother's Days and things like that. But for me, if Camille didn't get me a card on Father's Day, I, I, okay. It wouldn't be. But on a first Mother's Day, to not acknowledge how she has changed her life and not appreciate what she does for me. And so we learn. 
Here's a thought for you. What if marriage isn't because two people love each other or are in love with each other? What if that's not the purpose of marriage? What if the purpose of marriage is to teach two people how to love? Now, if they're in love first, great. But it is to teach two people to love like God loves. Opposites attract, and then they attack. That's the name of a book, I think. It really is. Anyway, so we may fall in love, but if we are going to be base our marriage on are we in love, do I feel in love, it's going to be tough sledding. But if it is, how can I learn to love like God loves? That's different. You know how God loves? In the Old Testament, it's called hesed. It is steadfast love. It is love that sticks with you. It is love that sticks with you even when it's brokenhearted. It is love that is kind. That is God's love to us. So I'll have the worship team come back up. You know, doing this series, sheepers. I don't know why. It's like, yeah, some of them out. That's good. That's, I mean, this, is, this has been heavy stuff. And here's what I realized. I realized that if I, if I am to follow Jesus' way, if I live with people that follow Jesus' way, it is better. Living in a world without anger, better. Me not being angry, better. Let's say we remove anger and we remove lust. How much, that's Jesus' order. Let's start with anger. Let's remove lust. How much divorce will there be if there isn't anger or lust? He knows what he's talking about. And so what I realize is when I actually say, Jesus, your Lord, and I want to listen to you and follow you, you what, I, what I recognize is, and I can't. I can't. I'm going to try, but I can't. And now all of a sudden, the fact that Jesus is my Savior makes a lot bigger deal. He knows all of that. And he still comes for people. He still forgives people. He still says, yes, be part of my family in all of our brokenness. Be part of my family. I'm going to come and meet you where you're at. And, and let me just start praying now. And for those for those who've been neglected or abused in their marriage as a result of divorce or parents, I thank you, Jesus, that you see them. You see people in their loneliness. And you said, it is not okay. What has been done to you is not okay. And you stood up against people that no one else was standing up against. To say when something was not okay. And at the same time, you came to people who said, we know we haven't done it well. We know we haven't done it right. And you said, it will be okay. I will make it okay. I have come to make it okay. So God, soften our hearts today.
where our hearts have become hard because of how bad they have hurt, would you bring your love and your grace and soften our hearts? Where our hearts have become hard because of our own selfishness, the way we have fed our hearts the wrong things, soften our hearts. We want hearts like yours, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.